Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. Amen. Okay, guys, so let's um, turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. That'll be our primary text, and then we'll, uh, we'll hit a few other places today as well. But Revelation chapter 5 is where we're going to camp out. For those of you who are going online, I'm reading out of the uh, ESV if you want to follow along. But where, let me move this up a little bit. Yeah, so we're, we're, um, we're diving into our third week on a teaching series entitled The House of Prayer. And I just, I got to be honest, I am so, so gripped by what we are talking about. Like I, I've, I just am coming alive I'm so excited. We, we talk about in this body a lot of beholding Jesus and bringing his kingdom. It's, it's, it's written on our wall inside. It's our mission statement. And I feel that when it comes to this idea of being presence-centered, you know, we've emphasized a lot from a very uh, personal standpoint. And that's so important. Like, we need our time with the Lord. Uh, but I feel in this last season, like everything that's happened, God has really helped me to get a, a clearer expression of how we do that corporately. Like, I've always felt, okay, we're, we're pushing people into individually, like we're leading them how to seek the Lord, but, but God, how do we corporately really behold you? How do we corporately become a presence-centered people? And, and the Lord has just, man, just begun to unlock scriptures that I've read before, but I just never really pieced it all together, uh, in, in spe- specifically of what it means to be a house of prayer. And I feel like that's, that's Jesus' definition, and I feel that that definition really begins to uh, give us a, a picture on how we corporately can be presence-centered and seek the Lord. And so this, this house of prayer, uh, it's what's led to these beholding sets, right? I know just looking out here, a number of you have been to them. Um, they're, they're just, man, they're, they've been, there's only been two, and they've just been life-changing. And I just know God is, is just a sign that his hand is on it. They're Friday nights right now. Uh, again, our space is limited, but I, I can tell you this, at the end of August, there's going to be multiple sets. And again, the vision is that we want to have multiple sets every single day where we are literally coming into being a house, a tabernacle of David, a house of prayer where there's unceasing worship and prayer that's just coming forth from this house. And man, as we've said and as we will share, and especially in weeks to come, like there's so much life, there's such grace that hits a body that I think that when they start corporately committing to this, like beholding the Lord, seeking his presence, listen, house of prayer, we can do this personally. We should do this personally. We can do this in our homes. We can do this in our prayer closets. But what I feel like stirring in my heart is a corporate call. I feel like God is saying, I want this to be an identity for this body. And I just think that there's so much life, like transformation, uh, demonstrations of the gospel will really begin to hit our house the more we commit ourselves to this one thing. And we shared in the opening week, like David said, David said, guys, this is what we're going to do. The presence of the Lord was a side issue during the leadership of Saul, but I'm going to make it the central thing. Like, this is my first move. But remember what he said? He says, we must do this. And it was really a corporate call to say, guys, like, I can't do this alone. And, and I know that we have such hungry people, but I'm just putting this before you that if you're a part of this body, I want to I want to encourage you to really, like, lose yourself into this. Um, as more sets come up, like, find your rhythm. Find where it, it, like, where the Lord calls you. Get it plugged in and make sure a part of your life is coming in this house and worshiping, seeking, praying God. Amen? 
Does it make sense? So listen, our, my goal is my goal is not to force anyone. It's never been. I actually hate that. I hate feeling like I'm trying to force someone to do something. So it's not going to be like, come on, guys, come on, guys. And not that I'm saying it, 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 it's like that, but my heart is to simply provoke hearts. So we're going to teach on it. We'll continually come back to this truth. But at the end of the day, like, I just hope that you see the beauty of this, like the benefits of what happened in your life, in this community, when we really seek the kingdom first. Like, do we take God at his word? That if you seek his kingdom first, all of the things will be added. And so often I think we just reverse it and start going after the other things. And God's like, no, 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 seek me first and watch how grace will spill out into all areas of your life. Like Jehoshaphat, you, you just start worshiping and watch how you get to battles that you were so consumed by and such pressures on your life. And then you get there and you're like, oh my goodness, it's just worked out. It's taken care of. Like we're really like stepping into this first commandment lifestyle to love the Lord our God. And then after that, there's like life that hits every other ministry that we're engaging in. So, so with that being said, we've been talking about house of prayer. Now our, our, I'm going to get into Revelation 5 in a second, so just stay there. But I want you guys to like just like catch the big picture and, and set, a, again, a, a framework for us. Matthew 21 has been a launching, uh, a text that's launched us each week. Matthew 21 is where Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He comes into uh, specifically to the temple, the house of God. And we've shared this extensively where he comes in and he's met with trade and activity and output. And ultimately Jesus is actually going to reform the house. Has to happen. And we'll get into this next week. It's beautiful of how every time reformation happened in the house of God, it was with Davidic worship. And when that took place, like revival happened. And so Jesus first has to reform the house. And what he says is, he says, my house shall be a house of prayer. He has to flip tables. He drives all this stuff out. But it's really, I just think this, it was, it actually happened. But I think there's a, a deeper, like, prophetic picture where Jesus is driving out religion. He's driving out activity. All these things that so often the church says, like, look how successful we are. Look how many people we have. Look how many followers we have. And it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with that, but I believe Jesus' heart was broken when he came into a house that was looking to all these other things as their measure of success rather than whether or not Jesus is recognizable in their midst. And so Jesus says, man, my house shall be a house of prayer. And what that means is my house will be centered on my presence. My house will be a house of communion. It'll be a house of fellowship. It'll be a house of intimacy. It'll be a house of encounter. And what he found was a house that was centered on so many other things. And here's, here's what really, like I was just pouring over this this week, and I was thinking about it. When he said, my house should be a house of prayer, he says, it is written. And I said, well, where is it written? It's Isaiah 56, 17 is what he was quoting. I said, man, isn't that interesting? Because Isaiah was a prophet that they loved. They honored him. They celebrated him. Like Isaiah was someone that they looked up to. And I feel like this is such a trap where we can, uh, we can know things. Wow, that's, uh, what are you going to do about that, huh? <laughs> you just got to go right through it. It's Isaiah 56, 17. And I, man, my heart was like touched by this, that Jesus comes into this house and, and he, he quotes a prophet that they know, that they love, that they celebrate. And I'm thinking, man, how often, how often do we... Uh, do we like know things in the scripture? We can quote it, we can cite it, like we know it, we even honor these principles, but our lifestyle is not matching up with our language. And I feel like it's easy to be in this, in this like house of prayer language and say, man, like we, we know this, right? We've done this, like we, we understand prayer is essential. But 
our lifestyle is actually not matching up with what, what is actually being asked of a house of prayer. And I, I just, I feel deeply like we fall into deception, like we get frustrated by this because we start saying, I don't understand, like I don't see the fruit, I don't see it working, but in actuality, it's because we're not living it out. So Jesus comes in, it's like, man, you're supposed to be house of prayer. And it's like, well, that's what we are. Well, why? Well, it's one of our core values. Like, look, on the wall, it's written there, we're a house of prayer. Like, we're a house of prayer because we're committed to prayer. We have a right attitude towards prayer. And it's like, is that what Jesus is really saying? Right? Is, is it just like this personalized definition that however you feel uh, it means to be a house of prayer, like, is that what he means? Or is there something that he was expecting to find? And, and this, is what, this is what really like was moving me is I believe Jesus had an expectation. Like we always talk about the tables being flipped, but like why? There was an expectation that he, he said, man, when I come in the house, it should look like something. And my question is, man, what was he looking to see? Well, like where is the precedent? Like he says, it is written. What was established beforehand that he was hoping to find? And so as I was going into Isaiah, and I, I just want to lay this before you because it will lead us into Revelation 5. But I thought this was fascinating that as I went into Isaiah 56, I looked up the word prayer in the Hebrew, which is tephilah. And it's interesting because there's, there's no uh, English equivalent to it. And what it means is it's not, see, when we think of prayer, we often think of us speaking to God. And that's an aspect. But what it actually is, is it's prayer set to music. It's prayers that are sung. So a lot of times what you'll find is this word is used in the Psalms when it says like lift up your prayers. It means that they're actually combining this thing of worship and prayer before the Lord. And this just like got me so excited because I'm thinking, man, is this not what, what we've been talking about with the Tabernacle of David? It's this worship prayer movement that is centered on the presence of God. And so where we've been the last few weeks is really discovering what does it look like to be a house of Tephilah? A house where there's worship and prayer that is centered on the presence of the Lord. And ultimately, like what we've been driving into is, is um, David's tabernacle. And again, I know that we've shared this, but just so, because this is new and it's so important for like what God is setting and, uh, and what this body is going to look like, like moving forward. I just want you to catch this and make sure you get this, that David's tabernacle is something that he set up that uh, I think it's, it's one of the clearest expressions of what it means to be a house of, of presence, a house of prayer. David, like I shared before, presence of God was put to the side under Saul's leadership. And David says in 1 Chronicles 13, my first move as leader is not going to expand our military. I'm not going to first reform our economy. My first thing is we're going to take the ark of the presence that was put in a barn for 40 years in kirith Jerem, and we're going to bring it back into Israel. And his first move, he said, we're going to put God back at the center of this thing. And so David puts the presence of the Lord as the central uh, focus of Israel. He says, this is my political strategy. And then the question becomes, well, how does he pursue the presence? Like, okay, he's bringing it back, but what does it look like? like? Practically, how do you do this? And this is where you find David's tabernacle, where he essentially puts the ark of the presence of God, which is what Jesus is for us in the new covenant. He puts it on a mountain called Mount Zion in Jerusalem. He puts a, a tent over it. And then he surrounds it with worshipers. And it says he hires about 10,000. That's musicians, singers, gatekeepers. They took turns uh, coming around the presence and circling around it. And day and night, it says, this is all in First Chronicles, they worshiped God and praised him and prayed to him uh, night and day. And David's kingdom flourished like no other kingdom. 
David is the one of who Jesus would ultimately come in as the son of David, right? Uh, he would come and sit on David's throne. Like David was set apart. And I believe we often focus on David like crushing Goliath and all these things which are great and, and so important. But I believe like what separated David was right here. How he pursued the presence of God. And so he set up this tabernacle which had no veils, no partitions. Again, so, so revelatory for what we walk in the new covenant. And for 33 years they worshiped God. And the kingdom of God just exploded. And here's, here's where we were last week and this is what we're getting into today. Is we, we, last week we shared, well, where did David get this idea to set it up this way, right? And I gave you that sheet. Hopefully you, you remember that. Hopefully it made its way home. But I gave you a sheet that paralleled uh, the tabernacle of David and Revelation 4, the throne room of God. Because what we find is that actually it says that David had an order that he followed. And it says often that he received insight from God in all matters of his life. But I believe it especially applied to how he set this up. And when you go into Revelation 4, which is the throne room of God, it's unbelievable the parallels between what happens in heaven right now around God's throne and what was taking place in David's tabernacle. Like David put, a, put the presence in the center and then he surrounded it. First and foremost, he had four chief worship leaders, himself and these three other guys, Heman, Jedathan, and Asaph. They were prophetic in nature. They would prophesy with their instruments, which means they have the gift of sight. And then after that, he set up 24 leaders or 24 elders around that who would lead these groups of probably one-hour sets, which allowed them to go 24 hours a day. And then it says there was unceasing worship day and night. Well, you go to Revelation 4 last week, and what do you find? You find that when John comes up into heaven, what does he see? He first sees a throne with God seated on it in the center. And there's all this activity encircling the throne. What does he see? Four living creatures. I think it's amazing. David had four leaders. There's four living creatures covered with eyes. Why? They have the gift of sight, just like David's prophetic leaders. Then David had 20, or, or in heaven, there's 24 elders. Well, David had 24 leaders. Like, wow, where did David get this? God gave him insight into what happens in the throne room, and he began to release the kingdom of heaven on earth. David got access into a heavenly model. He tapped into it and then brought it here on earth. That's why when we gather to do these beholding sets, it is so powerful. We're not trying to copy, we'll go into this next week, it's not trying to emulate exactly what David did, but it's the spirit of it. Worship and prayer around the presence of God. It's powerful. It's like the kingdom of God just comes and explodes when that happens. And so I believe with all my heart that what was taking place in Revelation 4, it's a mirror image of what David constructed on Mount Zion. It's a mirror image. And it, this is what makes it so, so powerful. So for today, I want us to just take a few minutes. We're not going to read all of Revelation 5. But I want us to look at uh, Revelation chapter 5 because it's actually a continuation of chapter 4. And so what my, my hope is is that you're going to uh, once again... Uh, just be encouraged of the connections between David's tabernacle and what happens in the throne room. And then through that, also see the impact it has on our life. And again, the, the purpose of this is to really stir our hearts to make beholding the Lord central to our lives when we understand what's actually happening in the spirit when we do this, all right? You guys with me? Okay, so Revelation chapter 5. Uh, I don't know how many verses. Probably go to like verse 8 or 9 or so. I won't read it all. But re remember... This is a continuation from chapter 4 where Dave, uh, John was caught up and called up to come higher. Remember that. 
So what we're seeing is this is still the result of John yielding to a call to come up higher. It's, it's still like the fruit of someone who would actually say yes to the Spirit's invitation to sit and behold the Lord, right? So all that we're seeing is still flowing from that. And again, what I hope you see is the impact it has on our lives and how this so connects to what David set up. So here we go. Starting in verse 1, it says this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? I'll explain this in a moment. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And verse 4 says, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So listen, I don't want to get too bogged down in the, in the details. There's a lot that's going on here, but I, I want to just give you enough background to capture like the points that I want to make here. And here, here's what you just need to know is that John is still caught up in this call to get away and behold, behold the Lord and come up into heaven. And now he sees something added to the vision. This is the same vision, just the second part of Revelation 4. And when John, John comes up, he sees, remember his first thing is he saw one seated on the throne. He saw one who was seated like he's the center of everything. This throne transcends every local government. I mean, th this throne is above everything. And he said that there were colors like radiating from this throne, which speaks to uh, who God is, his nature. There was sardius and jasper and emerald and new life, consuming fire. He's brilliant and pure. There's four living creatures. There's 24 elders. There's so much activity going on. And now John says, in the midst of all of that, he says, I see that one where everything is centered on. He's seated and he has a scroll in his right hand and it's sealed with seven seals. And here's all that you need to know is that this scroll is essentially the rest of the book of Revelation, in my opinion. Which means it's really God's, God's plan of redemption and renewal. But just capture the weight of that. It's, it's literally like how God is going to right every wrong, how he's going to literally deal with injustice. I mean, you think about the, the effects of sin. It's like locked up in this scroll, but it's sealed with seven seals, meaning until it's broken, we can't see the full plan of God manifest to fully vindicate his people, to fully deal with, again, the brokenness of, of this life in sin and ultimately to manifest his kingdom in its fullness. And so there, there's this cry that, that really begins to go out by, look, it says, verse 2, a mighty angel, a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. So this angel, he begins to preach the greatest, or one of the greatest messages in just one verse. He says, who is worthy to open this scroll? Like, this is so weighty what's happening here. He's really saying, who, who, is, who is capable Right? Who is, who is wise enough? Who is humble enough to handle such power and responsibility? Who is able to administer the contents in here? Who is able to fully bring about, like, the new heavens and the new earth? Like, is there anyone who can step forward and actually take on such a task? And it says that a universal search goes out to the heavens through the earth, and the report comes back that not a single man can do this. Like, you got to catch this. This is so beautiful. Uh, not, not Abraham or Moses. Not, not Elijah or Elisha. Not Joshua or Caleb. 
Not Peter, nor Paul, nor John himself. Like, the search goes out. Like, who is able to really bring about what's in the, in the, in the plans of God? And no one is able to. And this is, this is so, so key. Is verse 4 says, John's reaction to that is, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John actually uses this language in the Gospels when he talks about Lazarus who died. It's, it's like the most intense form of weeping. It actually could be read as, I wept and I wept much. Like John's heart is completely broken and devastated over the bleakness of the situation. The world is in need of a champion and no one is able to arise like this, this has got to really hit our hearts. Like this is, begins to invite us into the power of the gospel message, which is that like the world is broken, every human is broken, and who can right the wrong, right? And so John's heart is just, just broken by this, but verse, verse 5 becomes the key, guys. And I believe verse 5 begins to really speak into the fruit of getting a people who behold the Lord and begin to see him rightly. And I, I want you to just like, we're going to camp out on this for a second. It's so beautiful. But look at verse 5. It says, and one of the elders said to me, right? So one of these elders come up to John and say, weep no more. So there's an elder who comes up to John as he's broken weeping, right? Like we, we so theologize the gospel where it's like just memorize the points to share with someone to get them to know Jesus. That's great. But we got to let our hearts be burdened by the situation, right? That there's no one that can redeem and save but Jesus. And John is, he's weeping and an elder comes over and says, weep no more. He's not just giving him a pat on the back. Come on, you got to see this. He, he's not just saying like, you, you don't need to, uh, you know, here, here's like something that can work for a moment. He says, your hopelessness can come to an end right now. Like, weep no more. And what is the elder's reason for weeping no more? What does he say? He says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. These are messianic titles. I'm not going to get into all of it, but it's Jesus. It's a Jewish king named Jesus, and he has conquered. Like, he's prevailed. He's overcome. Every enemy he's putting under his feet, including death itself, like, he is completely victorious. And it says he conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So I want you to catch this picture. John is weeping, he's broken, there's a measure of hopelessness when he looks out at the world and sees what's going on. And this elder, what's an elder? An elder is a spiritual leader. But I believe like this elder, what's happening becomes so representative for what, what the body should be looking like and what the body should be doing. And I believe that even though, yes, we have like true elders and pastors, that every one of us seated here, you have a, a some type of leadership role in the body with your families co-workers, whatever it may be. And there's, there's a mandate, I think, that is like being released through this elder. It teaches us how we should respond to the issues of people in this world, right? So, so John is, is weeping, he's crying, and the elder says, like, you don't need to stay there. Like, the elder's inviting him to see what he's seeing. The elder's like, if you just lock into and see the line of the tribe of Judah, you actually don't have to stay there anymore. You don't have to stay in that place of hopelessness anymore. Did, this is, man, did the elder give a three-point sermon? Like, did he, give, did he give this perfectly crafted message and say, I see you've got brokenness in your life. Like, you've got pain, there's addiction, whatever it may be. Did the elder say, well, here's like my neat little presentation of what you need to do? Like, does the elder say, here's a book on the five uh, Christian steps to living successfully? The offer is superficial. 
Like it doesn't really tend to the wounds of people's hearts. But man, we've, we've got like a beautiful response. You come in with hopelessness. You come in with addiction. You come in through loss. Like you don't need to just have this beautiful three-point sermon. You need a people that have been beholding the lamb, beholding the one who's victorious. Like that's how you can start getting changed. And, and so, man, I just think this is so important for us and especially for this hour. I think John... John and this elder, like this, this elder provides an incredible picture for the church. Because I was just like mulling over this and I'm thinking, man, John came into an established environment. Right? Like John was caught up into a people. Well, there was creatures too. It was pretty crazy in there. But nevertheless, it was people and creatures that were locked into beholding the Lord. Like this is what they've been doing. So John came into this group that has been committed to this one thing. Like this is what they do. And I feel like it provides such a beautiful picture for what the church should look like when people come in with all of the issues that they're facing that are real. Like, man, my life is being shaken. I have pain. We just, you know, we share these. There's addiction. There's loss. There's grief. There's depression. There's all these things. But they come into a body that's been locked into this thing, and they start getting everyone saying, you just need to behold the lamb. Like, like, get into one of these, these times where we just begin to center around the presence of God. And I promise you, you start catching a picture of him who's victorious and stuff will start breaking off of you. Like, there's a place, don't get me wrong, of community and all these other things. But that is secondary to this. I'm going to talk about that next week. It's, it's, man, I so barely almost, yeah, I'm going to wait on that. But, but, but David actually, when he first tried to bring the presence of the Lord in, he put things before the presence, Ahio and uh, Uzzah. And it's actually, I think it's so prophetic of how we try to surround things around the presence to make it more relatable to people. And God ultimately has to kill that thing. And I just feel like we need to let things be just killed, like God is killing in the season. So the presence is central. And then we start seeing lives really get transformed. And so he comes into this. John comes in and, man, he comes into an environment that has been been beholding the one who has conquered. Like he's bigger than disease. He's bigger than depression. He's bigger than disappointment. He's bigger than generational curses. He's bigger than COVID-19. But listen, when we're not beholding in this, we start getting more influenced by those things. And then our answers to people get so like carnal rather than saying, no, 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 Jesus is greater than all this. You know what hit me? John, he was told to weep no more, and I really was thinking about this. In heaven, it says later on, there's no weeping in heaven. And I'm like, man, John came in. Remember, he comes into this environment, and he's weeping, and he's told, you need to stop weeping. And I realized that there is no hopelessness in heaven. There's no weeping in heaven. Like, actually, when you come into an environment where the Lord is central, you cannot, hopelessness can't remain. And I just feel like, if we're going to partner with God and see his kingdom come, hope is an essential ingredient. It's so essential. Like if we're going to believe for the kingdom of God to come, cities to be transformed, literally hearts to be revived, a harvest of great souls, you can't believe that and, and not see Jesus as the one who's conquered everything. And if you don't have that hope, it's going to affect your faith to believe for God to do that. And I believe God is waiting to co-labor with the people that have gathered around him or see him rightly and their hearts are so filled with hope regardless of what is going on in the world. Regardless of what has happened, they're like, no, no, I've seen Jesus. Do you know, this is why I believe 
Houses of prayer, prayer movements, worship movements always precede revival movements. Why? Because God has to deal with the cynicism in our hearts. He has to deal with unbelief. He has to deal with hopelessness. Once we start seeing him rightly and saying, wait a minute, hold on. God is able to do this. Now we start praying in faith. And like what we're engaging in, guys, right now, like God is going to deal with those things in our hearts. And all of a sudden there is going to be like cries and prayers and worship that comes forward that is just, it just believes in the Lord to do the impossible. Like, I, I just, I can't, I can't, I can't explain anymore. I'm so gripped by what we're stepping into. So excited for where this is going. And so God, listen, God invites us to see what he sees. You know, oftentimes, you know what my issue is? I feel like a lot, is a lot of times, and maybe you can relate to this, as Christians, I feel like we're so aware of what the enemy's up to. When we have conversations, it's like, well, this is what the enemy's doing. Well, this is what the enemy's doing. Well, this is what the enemy's doing. And yeah, okay, we understand that there's strategies and we're, 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 not, we're not, you know, we're wise to those things. But honestly, if all I do is study the strategies of the enemy, that doesn't produce hope in my heart. That actually many times produces fear. And I feel like it's just a trap to always try to be responding to the enemy that rather than res- hearing the voice of God and responding to his voice. Like, I don't really care what the enemy's doing. Because Jesus is conquered and he sits on a throne. So whatever he says is going to trump whatever I feel like the enemy is doing, right? Are you with me? So if we start really coming into that pattern, man, that will just shift our hearts, I think, completely. Which is why it hit me that David set up prophetic leaders. It's like, this makes sense. Why did he need, why did he need people that had prophetic giftings to be out in front? Because he needed people that were seeing God, that were hearing God. He knew that this was essential, that if we're going to lead the people, you need people that are hearing and seeing him rightly. So for 33 years, hope was released in Israel, like exploded. They literally came out of a place of where they were struggling deeply under the leadership of Saul. So they became the most dominant nation. Saul came in and it it was, I mean, Solomon, and it came in, it was like the the golden age of Israel. And it was just simple, like worship, prayer, presence became the center of everything. All right, let's keep reading. I was just going to read a few more verses. And it says this in verse 6. So John's told to behold the lamb. I got ahead of myself, behold the lion. But look, look what happens here. It says... Verse 6, and between or in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, this is deeply apocalyptic. There's a lot of imagery. Seven, seven horns just means power, all power. Seven, seven eyes speaks to the spirit, in particular discernment like wisdom. And so what John sees is he's weeping. He's told to weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah. And when he looks, he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. It was slaughtered, but it's standing. Like he's victorious. He's the resurrected king. And he sees this humble one who has all authority, all, all power, all anointing, like full of the spirit. And John begins to lock into this thing right here. And what really caught my eye here is that it mentions the four living creatures and the 24 elders. And it hit me because, again, what did David do? David set up this order of, of four primary chief worship leaders and then 24 leaders after that. And I feel, man, we need to see what happens in the spirit when we start coming into worship and prayer. See, when we gather like this or in these beholding sets, I said it a few weeks ago, we're not just meeting in a building. 
what it says here is that when we gather, who is in the midst? The lamb that was slaughtered stands in our midst. Like where two or more gather in my name, there I am in their midst. Like what would happen if we start coming like awakened to the fact that when we gather, it's not in the name of home church, it's not in the name of Andrew, but it's in the name of Jesus. And Jesus of Nazareth is actually in our midst right now. Like I believe that when we start beholding the Lord like we're doing and continue to do it, I believe people are going to encounter the resurrected Jesus. And they're going to be healed, they're going to be set free, they're going to be delivered, and they're going to say, wait a minute, no one preached the message and gave an altar call. But we're starting to come into awareness that Jesus is right here in our midst. And I just want to just fill your, your hearts with faith of what happens when we gather around the presence of the Lord. And, and here's, here's one more thing on this. John's told to behold a lion of the tribe of Judah. When John looks, what does he see? A lamb. And it's like, well, wait a minute, hold on, is, is there two different things? No, 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 it's the same one. He's the lion and the lamb. In fact, he conquered by being a lamb. And the point is this. I'll share this more actually in upcoming weeks. It's something practical, what happens when we behold. The Holy Spirit will begin to reveal Jesus in very personal ways to us. In fact, it happened when I was there Friday night. It was happening this past Friday. Like there's certain things you just sense the Lord is, the Holy Spirit is saying, I want you to see Jesus like this. And then we start coming under the way that he's revealing Jesus and he starts setting us free in that particular area where the, he, he reigns, he's, he, he redeems, whatever it may be. And so here you have an elder who says, I see a lion. John says, well, I see a lamb. And when we worship the Lord, this is what can happen. There's endless names to Jesus, which represent who he is. And the Holy Spirit will start revealing, like, counselor to someone. And then someone else, he's revealing, like, he's, he's the holy one. And he comes in such personal ways. And, it, man, it's just powerful. So here we go. I'm going to conclude with these last few verses. You guys with me? Everyone following? All right. Uh, yeah, I'll read up to... Um, I have everything here, but I'm just going to stop at verse 9, and then I'll share a few points. Okay, so verse 7. Like, this is probably the most intense scripture of this entire chapter. Think about all that's happening around this throne room, and look what verse 7 says. Speaking about this lamb, it says, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Wow. Like, who is worthy to take the scroll in the midst of all this? And John now sees this lamb that was slaughtered but standing coming right up in the midst of this throne, and he takes the scroll. And I'm not going to get into all of it, but there's 14 verses in this chapter. Worship just explodes now. When everyone in heaven sees the lamb that is worthy, everyone begins to worship. And there's actually three choirs that emerge, the saints... Then it leads into the angels, which it says there's myriads, thousands upon thousands. And then all of creation is how this chapter ends. So there's this domino effect because they saw the land that was worthy, right? But I, I just want to hone in on verse 8 and beginning of verse 9. Look at this. This is where the worship begins. It says, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down. The, the elders are always falling down. <laughs> They're just always, like it happens later on, they're always just casting their crowns and coming off their throne. They fell down before the lamb. But listen to this. Each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, and the song goes on, worthy you to take the scroll to open its seals, and it goes on and on. And here's the point, is that when John begins to see 
what's happening around the throne room. He sees these elders, and there's two things that they have. They have harps, and they have bowls. Very important. This is going to really explain, like, why we do what we do, and, and part of, like, the practical side is that the vision that John has is harps represent worship, and the bowls, it says right here, what do the bowls represent? The prayers of the saints. This is the model. This is exactly what David did. This is Davidic worship. There is worshipers that are worshiping and praying around the presence of God. In fact, uh, I was just doing some research. By the way, I'll share more of this. It's fascinating how houses of prayer are exploding over this nation and internationally. Like people are coming into this understanding of Davidic worship and how important it is. And, and a lot of them have used this phrase right here to give an expression to what they do. They call it harp and bowl which is that we worship and we pray around the presence of the Lord. Now, there's a lot of different ways you can do this, but ultimately it's the spirit of it that we worship and pray. Like um, uh, one of the big ones, have you ever heard of uh, IHOP in Kansas City? It's not the pancake place. <laughs> I, got so, I got so messed up on this. Where's Dina? Dina went to IHOP for a little bit when we were in Teen Challenge. I remember Crystal told me, she's like, she's going to IHOP. And I remember I was like, you can tell when someone just has like, you know, there's a call in their life. And I'm like, Really? She has such a call in her life, like, why is she going to, to work there? And then Crystal's like, like, this is honest. And she's like, no, 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 they, have a, they pray and they worship. And I still was like, wait, the pancake place has prayer and worship that goes on? And then I finally realized, like, no, International House of Prayer. So, so there's all these houses of prayer that emerge. And uh, anyways, they use this model of, of harp and bowl. I can tell you this, uh, this, is what we're, like, this is what we're doing on Friday. We have worship leaders, and then we have these assigned prayer leaders. Look, it may change. We may, we may uh, not that it's going to change with worship and prayer, but the way we do it may change. I just want to, like, encourage you to journey with us as we are going to experience what I call revelation on the run. Meaning I think that we're going to experience and encounter things, what God likes, what he doesn't like, because he's personal. We're going to find out, like, who God really is, and we're going to start to adjust along the way and say, wait a minute. When we do this, like, God really, like, shows up in a powerful way, Right? And that's okay, to, that's okay to not have it all figured out. Like the early church, God dropped a bomb in Jerusalem. <laughs> Holy Spirit came. Heart, people started speaking in tongues. Signs and wonders came. And people were trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Then the Holy Spirit touched the Gentiles, and they're like, okay, this is crazy. There was debate. There was confusion. They said, this can't be. They had to have councils. And then ultimately, the light turned on. They said, wait a minute. There's Old Testament prophecies that have said that this would happen. The Gentiles would be brought in. In other words, they experienced and were encountering something, and their theology actually had to catch up and say, wait a minute, this actually is rooted in the word. So don't be, uh, just journey with us. We're going to learn a lot on this, and that's okay, all right? So here, I want to just close out with just highlighting bowls and harps, and just speak a little bit more into the power of prayer and worship, and uh, we'll close it out here. So look what it says in verse 8. It doesn't just say it's the prayer of saints. It gives a description that they are golden bowls full of incense. That's us. Guys, this will change your prayer life if you really just like think about what this is saying. This means that our prayers materialize in heaven. How? For whatever reason, the imagery that's given is that when we start praying, our prayers become like a sweet aroma before the nostrils of God if you could give him facial features. That's, that's not my words. That's what's actually being expressed here, which means that he receives them. And two, it's a sweet incense which means he finds our prayers pleasurable. They're not a burden. Like we have one set 
10 years from now, when we've been doing multiple sets every day, his pleasure will never fade. <laughs> He's, when, when, when we start praying, I don't understand it, but when we start praying, like Friday night, we start praying and it's like, home church is praying. <laughs> like that's the imagery that he gives, that, that, that there's something that's happening. Our prayers, our prayers are not superficial. They're not perfunctory. Like they're not just done out of routine. They're actually going somewhere, they're doing something, and he's receiving them unto himself. Man, that is, that is so amazing. It's, and it doesn't matter like how insignificant you feel, how anointed you felt or didn't feel, like every big, big prayer, every small prayer, he's receiving them. In fact, he was speaking to me the fact that it's a bowl, because a bowl collects, which means not one of your prayers goes wasted. Not one of them are forsaken or forgotten. He says, every time you pray, I receive it unto myself, and I am collecting it. Man, it's so powerful. This will change the way we pray. Like Friday night was collected before the Lord, and it came up before him. Even when we have little resources, even when we have little prestige, even when we just have a little office to meet in, we have something that connects with God himself. God himself. And here's what's even more beautiful. I'm not going to get it, go have you read it, but in Revelation 8, we were talking about this in Revelation in our study this week. You guys should join. It gets better every week. In Revelation 8, it gives the same language about our prayers being like incense. You know what it says? I'll summarize it. It says that when our prayers come up, this throne comes up before God, and then God begins to move on the earth. Literally, it says that when our prayers come up and they get collected, then God says, now I'm coming. There's something, there's something about God partnering with us. Like his, his plan of redemption and renewal, it's just not, it's not just grinding forward in a mechanical way, irrespective of human involvement. Like it's just not, well, it's just happy. No, he's actually waiting for people to pray. Like what if, it's so easy to say, well, I guess it's not God's will for Mastic Beach to be touched. I guess it's not God's will. No, no, what if he's just waiting for people to start prioritizing him, worshiping and praying him and says, now I'm coming. Like you, your prayers came up, now my kingdom is coming down. And when he comes, he will do more than we could ever do um, going door to door, which was awesome, and we'll, we could do that. But I'm just saying, like, this has to be central in what, in what we are doing. Um, I want to I invite you to see our prayers as offensive. My, I often think prayer life as defensive. Like, oh, something's going wrong? Pray about it. And you should. Oh, you don't know which direction to go in life? Pray about it. It's always in response, which is good. Which is good. You should. But what this is saying is our prayers should be on the offensive. Like the more we start gathering here, we're not just going to be praying out of response to things happening. We're going to start praying into things that we know God wants to do. Which connects with seeing him rightly because we won't believe him to do that if we don't see him seated in victory. So the more we see that, we start praying with faith into God to do things. And the last thing on this is said that the golden bowls are full. They're full. This is why I believe the worship prayer movement is so essential to God's return. Because it's not going to be like a bowl that's just barely, like, just got a dribble in it. They're going to be full. And, like, I just believe houses of prayer are emerging because I, 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 don't, I'm, I don't know the exact time, but I just do feel stirring in my heart for the Lord's return. And we're going to play a significant role in that. So here's the second thing we'll close here is the harps. Now, now check this out. God could have surrounded himself with anything. <laughs> like, these elders, they could have... I don't know, he could have explained their uh, attire. I mean, it could, he could have done anything. But instead, he emphasizes harps. Now, check this out. First Chronicles 15, 16, uh, chapter 25. 
Do you know what David says is one of the primary instruments of the elders, the 24 elders? Harps. Again, I wonder where David got this idea, stringed instruments. Do you know that there's just something about, like, Caesar, whoever is playing instruments, I mean, they didn't have the keyboards, but whatever they're playing, like, there's something about God that delights in that. He actually says, like, I enjoy the stringed instrument. When you play it, I find it uh, pleasurable to me. Can you guys turn with me real quick to Psalm 33? I, I just want you to read this. It's so, so cool. Psalm 33, I want you to see this. I'll share this and one other scripture. So Psalm 33, when you start understanding David's tabernacle, it'll start giving much more context to the Psalms. Because remember, about 80% of the Psalms are actually written through the tabernacle of David. And so we start to understand them better. And I want you to just see what David says here that connects to what we just read. Remember, in heaven, harps, bowls, they're singing a new song. Well, look what David does. He's going to pen a song, and then he would have submitted it to the tabernacle for the chief worship leaders to worship. And look what he says. He's commanding them. He says, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Look what he says. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. It's amazing, like David is literally just almost communicating what was happening in Revelation chapter 5. Harps, strings, sing a new song. He said, he commanded them, and he, and he gave him time and says, and as you're singing, sing another song unto him. And listen, a new song, a new song is not just coming up with clever lyrics. Like a new song was birthed because they saw the worthiness of Jesus. So last thing, I'll close right here. Isaiah 42, I want you to turn and see this. Verses 10 to 13. And if Ray, if, if you wouldn't mind, Ray, playing some music, we're going to close here. I feel like we're just, every week we're just building and equipping, resetting vision for where we're going. So we already talked about how prayer, prayer moves God, prayer, prayer partners with God, and then God actually responds to prayer. Now check this out. We're going to see how he responds to our worship now. So imagine when you get a house that's worshiping and praying. The kingdom of God is going to come in a way we've never seen it. Now look at this. This is a prophetic word about Jesus coming back and basically his, his plan for justice. It's like carrying out what was in the scroll. Look what it says. This is directed to the people of God. Look at it. It says, sing to the Lord, what? A new song. Man, it's so good. Sing to the Lord a new song. And his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea... And all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedara inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. And then verse 13 is the key. There's been an invitation to praise from all these places. And verse 13 says, the Lord shall go forth. Like a mighty man, he shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out. Yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. And so what it says is there's, there's going to be this worship that precedes the Lord coming. 
And I don't just think it's a one time, but his kingdom coming more and more and more. And it's people, he says, from the coastland, from the desert lands, like from everywhere, people start lifting up their voices and singing new songs and says, and when those songs come up before the Lord, it begins to arouse a zeal in the heart of Jesus. And he actually says he begins to come and he begins to shout aloud, which means when the church starts to get loud and the church starts to stand up, Jesus begins to see a bride that's ready. He says, now I'm coming. And Jesus says, I'm coming with zeal now. And the kingdom of God begins to sweep through. And so I want to just, just provoke your hearts that when we pray and we worship and what we're engaging in, like we're not wasting time. There's not better things to do. There's other ministries and they are going to come, but this is going to, I'm telling you, this is going to put life into every other ministry. This is going to put life. Like we're going to step into things and it's just, there's going to just be open doors and fruit that emerges. You guys follow me? Are you with me? So listen, next week, next week we're going to talk about Amos. Because you might say, well, this is great, but I mean, why is it so important for today? I get it. It, it was, speaks to New Testament revelation, but... Uh, why f focus on the house of the tabernacle of David? Well, Amos actually prophesies in chapter 9. He says, in the day of the Lord's return, with, meaning like when the day of the Lord, when he first comes and this period we live in, he says the tabernacle of David will be restored. And, and again, it speaks to this worship prayer movement. And then from there, it's incredible. It says the nations are going to be touched by that. So we're engaging in something really beautiful. All right. So I just want us to pray uh, just to really grab a hold of this. And again, just stay with us in the upcoming weeks. We're going to have multiple sets. And uh, man, it's going to be really good, all right? You guys excited? I'm excited for this. <laughs> I'm excited. So let's pray. Actually, Caesar, can I ask you to pray? And Brittany, can you too? Caesar and Brittany are worship leaders. I want you guys to pray into this. Lord, we love you. You are our righteous king. Jesus, we thank you that you are worthy to make things right. You are worthy to take the scroll, God. We thank you, Jesus. For the light you bring, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness goes. Jesus, we thank you for your presence that is here now and available. And I thank you, God, for saving me, that I may give my life to you, God, and forever behold your beauty. And I pray, God, that we would be a people, Lord, that would be continually seeing you. I pray, Jesus, that every obstacle in our lives that hinders us from sight... God, would you remove, and I pray that this would be central, not only to this body, but to every individual. God, I pray that we would join in with what the creatures are seeing, with what the elders are seeing, God, and that our number one priority with our kids, with our lives, God, in all that we do, God, that it would be always continually setting the beauty of the Lord before us. 
And God, we trust, we trust, we know you, God. When we see you, we would see that there is none kinder than you, that there is none mightier than you, that there is none more beautiful than you, God, that there is none that can satisfy the way you do, God, that there is none who can break chains off of us, God, the way you can. God, we know that when we look at you, there's none that has more compassion than you. God, there's none who wants to see things made right. God, you are the one who loves justice more than anyone here, more than anyone in the earth. God, we thank you that when we see you, your glory, your glory is radiant. It changes us. It transforms us. And we know that it will transform a city. It will transform the nations. God, your rule will have no end. I pray, God, that we would be a people that continually set you before us. That we would see your beauty. And God, that we would be captivated by no other. Jesus, make this a house of prayer. I pray, God, that you would open our affections and emotions to the excitement that when we speak to you, God, it is pleasing to you. God, that every word does not fall flat. God, that you take pleasure, you smell a fragrance. God, I thank you that every voice, every instrument will prophesy your goodness. It will demonstrate, Lord, to the world that you're alive, that you're with us, that you're king that you're Lord, and that you're coming. God, I thank you that when we lift up our hearts to you, you respond. I thank you, God, that as we step into what you're calling us into, God, that there is a plan not for you to be far, but for you to be near. Jesus, I thank you for the revelation revealed in in Revelation 4 and 5 and the rest of the scriptures, God, I thank you that there is something in, happening in the spirit that's going to be released in this land. And I pray for the full manifestation of your kingdom to come. And God, we will continue to declare, to declare your goodness. We will continue to declare that you're alive. We'll continually declare that you are most beautiful, God. We will sing songs until our voices tire, and then we will dance. God, I pray, Lord, that we, there will be a continual expression here on the earth that will reveal, God, that you are most worthy. In Jesus' name. We love you, Lord. Father, we ask that you would create a desire within our hearts that you would be our every thought and our every move, God. That we would be a people <laughs> that as we rise, the moment our eyes open, that we would set our minds to you, that we would greet you in the morning before we think of anything else. Father, that our eyes would open and we would say, good morning, Holy Spirit. Father, that as we lay our heads to rest, that you would be the last thought on our mind, God. And as we sleep, that you interact with us, God. Make us a generation of people who hunger for your presence, God. Ones that are not fulfilled or satisfied with where we're at, God, that just walk so casually. But make us uh, with a longing and a desire to meet with you constantly, God. Father, we pray that you would interrupt our plans, God. We pray that you would interrupt the plans that we have made so that we could walk with you, God. Father, make us a people who are okay with being late, 
because we are so obedient to your voice, God. I ask that this movement would become more than, than anything that is just inside of our body, God, but that this would become a rage all across the island, God, that people would begin to be saved as we behold your face. Father, let it not just be speech, but let our hearts burn to see you. Let our hearts burn to see you rightly, God. I thank you that there is not a man on this earth who wants to make things right more than you, God. We thank you that that is your heart's desire. Father, we thank you that above everything on this earth, you reign. Father, we thank you that above every sickness you reign, God. I thank you that when we turn to you, Lord, that there is everything that we need. There is not an area left untouched when you come, Lord. And we thank you, God. We thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Father, let us be a generation that changes the atmosphere, God, that we would begin to see people turning to you, God, that we would begin to see those on the streets set free, God. We pray that we would become not a minority anymore in this country, but a majority that people would begin to turn their hearts to the Lord and see that you are good and see that there is fulfillment in you. Lord, teach us to never grow tired of seeing your face. God, give us the eyes like the creatures that we can see new parts of your beauty constantly and fall on our faces singing, holy, holy, holy. Father, we never want to grow tired of that. We never want to grow tired of saying that you are holy, holy, holy. We want to see you rightly, Lord. Help us, Father. We love you, Jesus. All right. All right, guys. Bless you. Have an awesome day. Awesome week. See you guys during the week at some point and next Sunday.